Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 16. We keep walking along with Abram here in the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one you can use right in front of you. I believe it's on page 12-ish. I didn't write it down. So somewhere around page 12 you'll find we're looking for Genesis chapter 16. I'll give you a second to turn there. Genesis 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant And shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him. Who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lehiroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Well, when we come to chapter 16... I didn't really know what to expect as I started study this week and preparing. But what I found is that when we come to this chapter, we come to a chapter that is surprisingly full of gospel hope for people who stumble along in their walk of faith. People like you and me. I say surprising because at first glance, what I just read, it sounds just like a strange story that feels a bit soap opera-ish. There's the love triangle There's jealousy, there's family drama. 
And you think, what in the world is this doing here? But the story actually wrestles with big questions and big challenges for our faith. Questions like, what do you do when you've been waiting for God and it seems like nothing's happening? Or what if it seems like God's way isn't working? Or maybe the biggest question that it deals with is, does God even see what we're going through? Does he hear when we cry to him? As I thought about those questions, it made me think, have you ever seen a show or movie where somebody ends up on a deserted island or maybe an enemy territory? They're somewhere way far away from where they need to be. And after waiting and waiting and waiting, finally, they see a plane. They see a plane and it comes near, but no matter how loud they shout or how much they wave their arms, the plane can't see them. They can't hear the cries. And at times, can't our hearts feel a little bit of that toward God? That maybe, maybe he's just too high or maybe he's too far away that he, he can't see what I'm going through. He's not hearing me when I keep crying out and saying, God, change this. God, fix this. God, heal this. God, make it a different way. And when we feel that way, when we start to wonder, can he hear me? Can he see me? What do we typically do? We get tired of waiting and we try to get what we want or need our own way. Well, this passage this morning is for exactly those kind of struggles. In fact, as we look at this passage, chapter 16, think of it this way. It has two things on the wall of this chapter. A mirror and a window. So first, in verses 1 to 6, you can go ahead and throw the slide up for the outline. First, in verses 1 to 6, we look into a mirror. And what we'll see is a heart that won't wait and does things its own way. We get a glimpse of what this looks like played out in someone's life. So it's not just a concept. We see what it looks like. And my guess is as we do, we'll all be able to relate a little more than we wish we could. But then as we continue to scan our eyes along the chapter, we also find not just a mirror, but a window. And now instead of reflecting back to us what we're like, we get a picture looking through this window of what our God is like. And through this window, what we see is that he is a God who sees and hears us. So we're going to look at both this morning. We're going to look at the mirror and then the window. So that's where we're going. So let's start with our mirror first. Let's see a heart that won't wait and does things its own way. Look at verse 1. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So here, right at the beginning, we have a reminder, in case we've forgotten, what the problem is. Abram's been promised offspring. Abram's been promised offspring more numerous than the stars above. But here we are, and Sarah has borne him how many? No children. And just like the clock on a game show where time keeps ticking away, Sarah's getting desperate. She's getting more frantic. Things are not looking good for her chances to give Abram the son and the heir that they've been waiting for. But as we're looking at her and her anxiety and her fear, all of a sudden we see, wait. It's as though the camera has been focused on Sarah and this image of her as worried and desperate. But then suddenly, 
it shifts to someone lurking in the background. Sarai's eyes land on this Egyptian female servant named Hagar. This servant who was most likely picked up in Egypt when they were there back in chapter 12. And as the camera shifts from Sarai to Hagar, we can see the wheels start to turn in Sarai's mind. Just like Abram in Egypt, she doesn't start praying, she starts planning. She's been waiting so long for God's promises, but she can't wait anymore. Time's running out, so she's going to take matters into her own hand and do things her own way. So she goes to Abram with her plan in verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, notice what she says first. When she says the Lord prevented her from bearing children, that's theologically true. We see all throughout the Bible that it is God and God alone who gives or withholds conception. In Genesis 20, we read, The Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech. He does that. He can say no conception. But then a few chapters later in Genesis 25, we read, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah conceived. The Lord closes and opens the womb. So what Sarai says about the Lord preventing her from bearing children here, she's right. It's theologically true. But it doesn't seem as though she's simply stating a truth. We can't help but hear a note of blame in her words. She's frustrated and angry that God hasn't given her what she so desperately wants. It's his fault that she doesn't have children. So she grows tired of waiting and decides she'll get what she wants her own way. Now her plan, we see, is for her to have Abram sleep with her servant and the hope is that maybe her servant can act as a surrogate to bear a child and she'll get children that way. Now, when we hear this, this might land on us at first as a really strange solution. And in some ways, that's good and right that we feel that way. But in the day, it was actually not that uncommon for people in the ancient Near East, at least those who were wealthy enough to have servants, to try this course. It was seen as a legitimate way to add children to the family. And those children who were born to servants would be considered full-fledged members. They weren't second class. They were full-fledged members and able to be heirs. So the culture around her would have had no problem with this. They would have heard this idea. If she's, I doubt she did, but if she's talking to her friends saying, Hey, I'm thinking of having Abram. Uh, I'm thinking of giving him Hagar. What, does that sound like it? They're like, oh, yeah. I know, I know Sally. She did the same thing. Worked out great. They see no problems. It seems reasonable. It's socially acceptable. It made sense to the world around her. But as we know from earlier in Genesis, it goes against God's design for marriage. One man, one woman. So the question we need to answer right here is, is there polygamy in the Bible? Is there times when people, even God's people, take more than one spouse? Yeah. And you know what else there is in the Bible? Every time we see it, it goes horribly. Every time. 
So this is in no way condoning this. In fact, the story unfolds in such a way that we're meant to see that was a really, really bad idea. We're going to see that in chapter 16. Okay, so what happens after Sarai presents her plan to Abram? The great man of faith. The man who had received the covenant promises of God. Remember, remember last week, the very last chapter, when he's, God came down and walked through the animals? I mean, this is unbelievable. Surely he'll trust the Lord. Surely he'll point his wife back to the promises, right? You got to bear with me. I got a tickle this morning. We're going to try to get through this. Verse 3. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, There's some irony going on here. Hopefully, maybe some of you even caught it. But back in chapter 12, remember chapter 12? Abram had a failure of faith. Remember this? And as a result of his failure of faith, what did he do? He ended up giving his wife to an Egyptian. Well, now, roles are reversed. Abram moves from the giver to the receiver. And Sarai switches from the pawn in the scheme to the instigator in the scheme. But there's something else going on here too. Because this isn't the first time we've heard someone called out for listening to his wife instead of trusting God, right? Genesis 3:17. Back in the garden, God says to Adam, "Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it." Cursed is the ground because of you. So there's a strong link. The language is meant for us to be like, wait a minute, I've heard that. Listen to his wife. But it's not just that. No, there's far more going on here that links these two stories. Look at verse 3 again. What happens? Sarai took the forbidden woman and gave it to her husband, who passively received it. Just like Eve took the forbidden fruit, gave it to her husband, and he passively received it. So why does this matter? What, why, what is the author trying to do here? Showing us, hey, this story sounds like that story. Because what we're supposed to see is that this incident is nothing less than another fall. It's no different than the garden in the sense that Sarai does what Eve did. She chose her own way of getting something she wanted rather than trusting God to provide what he promised. Okay, but why did she do this? Why? Well, I think we get a clue in verse 3 when it says this took place after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. 10 years. This has been a decade, people. I mean, she was old for childbearing when she first got the promise, but it's 10 long years later And still no kids. She's tired 
of waiting. So she tries to take control and thinks, I gave him a decade. I gave him however many years. Nothing's happening. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to get a son my way. So did her plan work? Well, verse 4. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So did it work? Yes. But not how she thought it would. Hagar's with Abram one time and she gets pregnant after Sarai's been trying for decades. And there's strong emotions on both sides here. This pregnancy results in two people with really strong emotions. For Hagar, she becomes proud of her pregnancy, right? She, she realizes after this one time that she's pregnant and I'm sure there's some normal maternal pride but it seems like there's more going on here that she's flaunting it that she starts to look down on Sarai because (laughs) she was able to do something that she couldn't she's got an edge so oh hey mistress I've got something that you want and can't have and imagine how this felt to Sarai she'd been trying to get pregnant with Abram for years and nothing but now her servant One time. And now her servant is experiencing the joy she's longed for for so long. Not only that, she's rubbing her nose in it. She's she's flaunting it in front of Sarai. We see a pattern repeat itself here. In verse 1, Sarai faced a problem. She had no children. So what did she do next? She blamed someone. She blamed God. Well, what happens here? Verse 4, she has a new problem. She still doesn't have a child, but now her servant is pregnant with her husband's baby. So what do you think she'll do next? Blame someone. Look at verse 5. Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she'd conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Here we, we see this and it looks ridiculous. Right? Because even though it was her plan, when it works, she gets angry with Abram and blames him for what's happened. Now, earlier, when the plan was first presented, Abram could have stepped up, right? He could have stepped up when his wife suggested the idea in the first place, and he could have lovingly helped his wife say, no, 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 let's go down a different path. That's not the way God would have us go. But instead, he just passively went along with it and said, Yeah, okay. Sounds good, honey. Now here, once again, he's got a chance. She's she's coming to him with these accusations. He could step up. He could own his bad decision and say, you know what, we shouldn't have done that. But listen, you need to know I love you. You're my wife. And reaffirm his care for her. Try to find a way forward. But what does he do instead? Verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. So once again, Abram just passively says, whatever, do what you think is best. Basically like, why are you bothering me with this? It's your deal, just whatever you think. How does Sarai respond? Verse 6 again. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. We see here that when someone else has what Sarai wants, she responds in anger and mistreatment. This is how it often works, isn't it? 
Maybe you've heard the phrase that's very true is that hurt people hurt people. Right? We see this all the time. And Sarah here is in pain because her attempt to do things her own way has blown up on her and made things worse. And now because she's hurting, she takes her hurt out on Hagar. Sarai treats her so harshly that Hagar says, I got to get out of here. She's forced to flee. Now pause here for a second. And I want you to put yourself in the Israelite shoes as they read this later. As they're with Moses in the wilderness, they're reading through this account. And think about what they're hearing. What's going on here? An Egyptian slave is treated harshly by her Israelite master and eventually flees to the wilderness to escape. It's a reversal of what would happen, right? When the Israelites would be slaves who are treated harshly by their Egyptian masters who then flee to the wilderness to escape. So imagine the moment as they're reading or hearing this and it dawns on the Israelites, wait a minute. You're saying that before Egypt did it to Israel, Israel did it to Egypt? And it gets them thinking about just exactly where some of this stuff starts. But back to our story, because at this point, we're left wondering with the question. If you're doing this in a kid's classroom, you know, the kid's classroom, they, <coughs> you always want to kind of have the hero, right? And so at this point, if you're the teacher, you're left wondering, I'm really confused. Who is the hero of this story? Not Sarai, right? Because she showed a complete lack of trust in God's promises and just does things her own way. Okay, scratch her name out. Uh, not Abram. I mean, he's a passive accomplice in all her sins and schemes. Well, there's Hagar. No, not Hagar. She shows pride and looking down on Sarai when she has something that she doesn't, so that rules her out. So we're left wondering, who's our hero here? But before we answer that question, let me answer a different one. Let me talk for a minute about why did I say this part of the story is like a mirror? I call it a mirror because I think when we look at each of those characters, I think we see a little bit of them in us. Think about each of them with me. Think about Hagar. Are there ever times you catch yourself looking down on someone who doesn't have what you do? Maybe God has graciously given you a higher income or more education or a spouse or a, a family situation or certain gifts or talents or experiences. Whatever it might be, does it ever tempt you to think less of someone who doesn't have that thing? That in some way you can start to think that you're better than them. Now I know we, would ne we know better than to ever say that out loud. But does that ever pop up in your heart? In your thinking? That because I have something they don't. Therefore it puts me up another level. But what about, what about Abram? Do you ever find yourself in situations where you know what's happening here? This, this isn't honoring to God. But rather than speak up or lovingly try to change the direction, you just, you just go along with it. 
It's going to be easier. Like, why put up a fight, make a stink, just, and hey, you might get something out of the deal. So why not just let it be and say, whatever, just go with the flow. Or maybe most of all, we see a bit of Sarai in us. What do we do when we get tired of waiting for God to act? We act, right? When we really want something, or we start to feel worried or anxious that we won't get what we think we need, don't we often start planning rather than praying? Trying to do things our way on our schedule rather than trusting God to work in his way and on his schedule. Sarai, what she does here is she holds up a mirror and she shows us a heart that won't wait and instead does things its own way. So back to our other question. Who is the hero in this story? No one seems that heroic. Which leads us to our second section where we stop looking in the mirror and instead look through a window and what we see in the window is a picture of our God. And as we'll find out, he is the hero of our story. So let's pick up the story and see what we can see about our God. Okay, Hagar's just run away. She's running away from her mistress Sarai and her mistreatment. So look at the next scene starting in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. Okay, so stop there a second. Here we've got Hagar in the wilderness by a well. And now, judging by where this well is, we can tell that she was most likely headed back home to Egypt. She left, left the camp of Abram and she's making her way back to where she came from. And as she's sitting there at this well in the wilderness, for the first time, we meet this mysterious figure called the Angel of the Lord. Now that phrase, Angel of the Lord, will show up in the Old Testament 58 times. And there's lots of speculation about what or who this angel might be. But based on what we see this angel do and say, not just here, but throughout the Old Testament, it seems most likely that this is not just a messenger of the Lord, but the Lord himself, a visible manifestation of the invisible God. Okay, and that's going to be significant. Now, as Hagar's running away and in the wilderness, this angel of the Lord, it says, finds her. Now, find here does not mean find by stumbling upon something. You're walking along the street and you look down and you see a dollar underground. You say, oh, what's this? I found a dollar. Like, that's not the kind of find. This angel wasn't just cruising through the wilderness. It stumbles upon Hagar. No, this finding means to find by seeking out to intentionally go after. So the first glimpse we see about God here is that he is a God who seeks out and finds. He goes looking for who? For the outcast, for the hurting. And when he finds her, what does he say to her? Verse eight. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. Pause there. Now, this might not seem like much at first, but did you catch the fact that he called her by name? If you look up in verses 1 to 6, you'll notice that neither Sarai nor Abram 
ever call her by name. She's just my servant or your servant. She doesn't matter. She's not valued. But now, here we have God seeking her out. And when he finds her, he calls her by name. He knows her name. She matters to him. In fact, he gives her dignity and worth by using her name. This is incredible that Abram and Sarah wouldn't give her the time of day. She's just that Egyptian girl. She's your servant. You know, what's, oh, what's her name? You know, my servant. He says, Hagar, I know you. The angel then asks her where she's coming from and where she's going. This is not because he doesn't know. This is the same type of question as when God asks Adam and Eve in the garden where they are. Or when he asks Cain, where is your brother Abel? He's not looking for new information. He's drawing attention to something that he wants to speak into. And here, Hagar tells him that she's running away from Sarai in the pain of all those circumstances. So after she lays that out and says, I'm running away from this mistress, what would the angel of the Lord say to her? Verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now these are most likely not the words of comfort that Hagar was looking for as she tried to escape. Because what the angel tells her is, turn around and go back the other way. Go back to the hard situation she was trying to get away from. In fact, the word he uses for submit here is the same word up in verse 6 when it says Sarai dealt harshly with her. It's the same word for deal harshly and submit. It's basically he's saying go back and be dealt harshly with. Submit to her harsh treatment. What a, this is a hard word. And yet what I don't want you to miss is that Hagar obeys it. She does what God called her to do. Why? Because that's not all that the angel said to her. Look at verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So after this call to endure suffering, to go back, the angel then puts a foundation under it, puts a, a motive under it and says, I'm going to give you promises of blessing. And because she believes the promise, and because she believes the promiser, Hagar goes back by faith. But notice a few things about these promises. First, just like with Abram, it says Hagar's offspring will be so many they can't be counted. And it will all start with a son. Now, Hagar already knew she was pregnant. So when the angel says that, that wasn't new info for her. But for the first time, she learns the child will be a son. And she used to call his name Ishmael. Now, in this passage in particular, names are really important. And you probably have a footnote in your Bible that tells you what Ishmael means. It means God hears. Now why does God want her to name the boy that? He says because the Lord has heard and listened to her affliction. 
He has heard her suffering and her cries. He's heard her pain and she, he's heard when she's called out to him. The God who is the possessor of heaven and earth heard this one lowly servant when she cried. And for the rest of her life, she'll be reminded of that fact. And not just her. Think about Sarah constantly hearing Hagar call for her son, the son that Sarai didn't have when she says, Ishmael, God hears, God hears, God hears. Don't you think, what did that do to Sarai? And we see that while Ishmael will become great in numbers, lest we think that he's, he's carrying on this, this Abrahamic promise, it says he will not be like his father Abram in some ways. It says Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. Now we hear that and automatically we just think like obstinate or foolish. That's not exactly how it was used in biblical times. These wild donkeys were donkeys that looked more like horses, and, but they lived in the wild. They, were, they usually lived in wastelands and barren and desolate places, away from other people, just kind of they did their own thing. They, were, they didn't like to be around others. And it says so too, would Ishmael. He would have conflict with everyone and live in opposition to those around him. One author points out that in many ways, Ishmael would be merely a shadow or a parody of his father Abram. Because he too would have 12 sons, 12 princes who would be notable in their time, but not in salvation history. He would lead a restless existence, but not as a pilgrimage on the way somewhere like Abram. His restlessness is just an end in itself. It's a moving and traveling and not being at home that never stopped. And while Abram's nonconformity to the world around him, Abram's being different, being set apart, would ultimately lead to blessing for the world. Ishmael's nonconformity would only lead to battles, not blessing. So after these promises, we hear Hagar's response and we get two more names that give us a picture of God. Look at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Side note, did you hear that? She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Not the angel, but the Lord. She called him, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lachai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So we've already learned from the first name, Ishmael, that God hears. But now we see in other names, God also sees. Even when we feel like we're alone in the wilderness, God sees us. All our hurt, all our heartache, God sees. And there may be times, friend, when it feels like no one really sees you. That no one sees what you go through day to day. No one sees the things that you suffer at home alone. No one sees what's happening. You might feel invisible. You might feel completely out of sight. But Genesis 16 tells us our God is a God of seeing. And that means he sees you. His eye is always upon you. 
Psalm 33 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. 2 Chronicles 16 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to support those whose heart is fully his. There is no place where God's eyes aren't on you, and there is no time when he doesn't see you. This is meant to encourage us. And that's what Hagar acknowledges when she calls him a God of seeing. And then she clarifies. She says, this scene, when she says that he's a God who sees me, she doesn't just mean that God perceives her, but that he provides for her. It's not just a scene of like, oh yeah, I'm aware that you are there. It's a scene of looking after. She saw the one who looks after her. She's put her eyes on the one who has his eyes on her to take care of her. And so to remember this truth, she names the well where she is, Ber Lachairoi, which means the well of the living one who sees me. And I love that because, again, just think, when you go to a well named that, every time she, she or anybody else would ever go back to this well and drink, this is the well of the living one who sees me. Oh, I need, I need to go back and drink from the well of the living one who sees me. The well of the living one who sees me. I need more of that. I need to be reminded of that. Friends, we have a well that we can go and drink from to remind us that we have a living one who sees us. And do you see the picture of God that we get in this passage? Do you see our hero? He's a God who sees us in our suffering. He's a God who hears us in our need. And he comes to us. And we see the same thing years later when the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. They groan, they cry out for help, and listen to what happened. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. God sees, God hears, God comes to save Friends, this is the gospel that in our sin and our suffering, God seeks us. He comes and he finds us. And when he finds us, he calls you by name. He sees and hears our affliction and he came for us. The one who is the image of the invisible God came to seek and save us. And when he came, Jesus paid for her every failure. Every time that you and I grow impatient and try to do things our own way, instead of waiting for God, we're saying, I will wait for you, I will wait for you. But how many times do we know, I didn't wait? And every time Jesus paid for that, every time we trust our way more than God's, every time we look for the answer in our plans instead of in our prayers, every time we despise and look down on those who don't have what we do, Every time we shrug our shoulders and just passively say, whatever, and go along with sin. Every time Jesus paid for it. That's why we can sing, are you hopeless? Are you guilty? Are you caught in shame for all your sin? He pursues you to forgive you. Rest in him. 
He has paid for every failure. Mercy flows in endless streams. It's coming up out of the well of the living one who sees me. And it's mercy that's flowing for you and for me. So come and follow. Freedom calls you. Rest in him. How sure his compassion for us. How deep is his love. So come. Come to Jesus and rest in him. That is our invitation this morning, friends. Whether you've ever come before or whether you've come over and over again, the invitation is just as loud, just as loving, just as warm. He stands ready to receive you saying, come. Because our God sees and hears us. He cares for us. He comes for us. So let's come to him and rest. Our passage then ends with a reminder and a subtle rebuke. Look at verse 15. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now this is a subtle rebuke of Sarai. Do you remember our story started with Sarai not wanting to wait on God's promises. And instead, try to give Abram a son in her own way. But did you notice who's not mentioned here? At the end, Sarai. Instead, three times we're told Hagar bore Abram a son, the son whom Hagar bore when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. It's making the point. A son did come, but Sarah's plan didn't work. Instead, a child was born named God hears. So what are we to take away from this? both from those last verses and the story as a whole. I think what we're meant to take away is this. Rather than trusting the God who sees and hears and praying to him, Sarah planned and did things her own way. Her plans failed, but God showed himself to be the one who sees us in our suffering and hears us in our need. And he comes for us and cares for us. Which leaves us with the question, which will you trust this week? Will you trust a heart that won't wait on God and does things your own way? Or will you trust the God who sees and hears us? Church, let's come to Jesus and trust him together. You pray with me. Father, we thank you that you pursue us to forgive us. That you come after us in our wilderness wanderings and you find us. You call us by name. Thank you that you sent your son to seek and save the lost. God, thank you that you care for the lowly and the outcast. And though Hagar had done nothing in this story to to deserve your attention or your affection, you mercifully give her both. You see her and hear her in her cries and in her need, and you come and you save her. And Father, we know you've done the same for us. And so we pray this week, Lord, we are always tempted to find our own way because we know that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to death. So would you incline our hearts to your ways? 
Would you open our eyes to see good things in your word? And would you satisfy us daily with the truth that you see us, you hear us, and you come for us? Help us to believe that more this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.